this is Monocle Reads. I'm Georgina Godwin. And my guest today is Carrie Dunn. She's a sports journalist and academic. Her latest book is Unsuitable for Females, The Rise of the Lionesses and Women's Football in England. Recounting the troubled, shocking, but ultimately immensely inspirational story of the women's game in England. Dunn's riveting book tells of the courageous female players who defied the half-century ban on women's football and the glorious rise of the Lionesses. Carrie Dunn, welcome to Monocle Reads. Thank you so much. Uh, Why did you feel you needed to write this book? Well, I've been a sports writer um, for the past 20 years and I've written mostly about women's sport and... It has been a slog trying to get newspapers and magazines and broadcasters interested in the women's game. I mean, I remember only a few years ago in 2015 when I was out in Canada for the Women's World Cup, there were only literally a handful of British journalists out there following England in the group stages. So even in the past seven years, we've had massive progress. And we have seen in recent years, so probably since 2019 and the Women's World Cup in France and Phil Neville being the England manager and the start of seeing the Women's Super League and England matches all over the television, we started to see you know, women starting to get more and more of a spotlight. And I think it's really important that we always remember the long and frankly quite surprising history of the women's game in this country because the ban on women's football wasn't lifted until 1972 which I know to very young people will sound like it's ages ago but it's not it's within people's lifetimes and I think it's really important that we chronicle the stories of the women who kept the women's game alive before we lose their narratives to be able to talk to these women about their experiences and get them down on paper is so so important women's history in their own words back to the end of the 19th century and a footballer who probably didn't exist i'm talking here of nettie honeyball what a fantastic name (laughs) um yes so nettie honeyball was the uh, the public face i guess of the british ladies football team and they toured the country and they would play exhibition matches and we're not quite sure who nettie honeyball was we know it was most Probably, most definitely a pseudonym. And there's no kind of traces of anyone called Nettie Honeyball or anything quite like it. So we think it was like a stage name. We think a lot of those players who played for the British ladies would have picked a stage name to play under because women's football, although lots of women did play it at the time, there were still some question marks around it. Um, Certain middle-class aspects thought that it was perhaps a bit rough a a bit hoydenish and Nettie Honeyball was the public face of this team she would talk about her ladies about um, how feminine and ladylike they were she was there to kind of be the respectable face of women's football I guess and we're not as I say we're not quite sure who she might have been or there might have been one or two people who kind of assumed the name it was something that was passed down between club secretaries so yes it's an absolutely fascinating tale I mean I know that a lot of women's football historians don't agree on who she might have been I've made my best guess in the book but I know there are plenty who don't agree with what I think. Now Emma Clark was possibly the mm. first black female professional footballer uh, tell us about her. Yes, Emma Clark is another interesting one. It's very difficult, again, to track her story. And when you're researching women's history, 
it is difficult to nail things down in the same way as you can if you're researching men's history because the documentation simply isn't there. Um, women haven't lived public lives in the same way as men have. The census, for example, you know, women might not be named on there. You know, we know we had the suffragettes refusing to be part of it. But also because women change their names. They get married, they change their surname. We're not quite sure where they are. So Emma Clark. She has been given this mantle of the first black female professional footballer in Britain. And we're not entirely sure what her background was. We think, in fact, she might be the first ethnic minority female player. And we think that she might have been born from a family that were living out in what was with British Raj at the time. But the problem is we're relying on some slightly dubious photographic evidence and so obviously with black and white photos it's difficult to quite see what's happening and we don't have the written documentation until we get to a couple of generations down and we have a family story coming out so it's all a little bit vague and um, think people have pieced some narratives together but I think what the important thing about Emma Clark is is even if she was not the first there were certainly women of minority ethnic backgrounds playing at the time so I like to think of it as her standing for all those women who played and haven't had that recognition whose stories haven't been pieced together she's kind of the icon the legend that comes to symbolise all those women who did play at the time and didn't get their recognition. Now talking of diversity Lily Parr was supposed to be the first lesbian footballer but in fact there is some pushback on that there is um this is a very very fascinating one because when i first started looking at the history of women's football one of the first things i found out about was an lgbtq plus uh, football tournament that was named in honor of lily parr and then i started to read a little bit more around it and i found that there have been quite a sizable pushback from her family and what i discovered and again, perhaps I should have kind of thought about this if I'd pieced it together sooner, was that a lot of women of that generation kind of after the First World War and then after the Second World War, there was a shortage of men. And we find a lot of the women of that time kind of setting up household with a companion, a female companion, a friend to help them keep house, help them take care of children if they've been widowed. And Lily Parr, she did share her home with a female friend, but her nephew was absolutely adamant that um, she wouldn't have called herself lesbian. And I think this is a really important thing when we look back at history in general, but particularly women's history of this nature, that we don't start necessarily applying labels to people with words that they wouldn't necessarily have used for themselves. They wouldn't have understood their relationships in the same way that perhaps we would interpret them now. And so, yes, through our modern prism, perhaps we might define these relationships differently, but certainly those women at the time would not have understood their relationships with their female friends, their close female friends in the same way. Well, and onto the hyper-feminine, there's a very famous picture of the footballer Wendy Owen putting makeup on before her first <laughs> England match. Tell us more about that. Yes, oh, Wendy is an absolute legend and it was absolutely brilliant to talk to her. But um, yes, she was one of the um, younger players in the first ever England squad and she had long blonde hair and, you know, she was in her football kit and the photographers being interested in the first England women's squad, first official England women's squad, went along to snap some pictures and suggested to her that she put some makeup on. And so we have this um, famous photo 
And Wendy was given that compact that she's looking into. She never wore makeup. She never wore eyeshadow. She didn't know what she was doing, but she's posing for this photograph because that's what she'd been asked to do. And then we see a similar photo 10 years later, actually, with um, one of the England goalkeepers during the first Women's Euros. She's sitting by the goalposts while one of her teammates is training, and she's been asked to pose, put some makeup on. So it's kind of emphasis that even though these women are footballers, they're still women. They're still more fussed about the way they look than they are about their football, which is obviously not the case. But it was the story that some of the reporters, obviously male-dominated reporting at the time, wanted them to fit into. Absolutely. But you do talk about how women then start being taken seriously. They do. It's, it's a long, it's a long slog. But they do. After the FA lift the ban in the early 1970s, and we have this first official England women's squad, they start training as much as they can. They start to have tournaments. They start to have a UEFA tournament in 1984, the Women's Euros. And then as we get into the 90s, we have an official Women's World Cup. So we still kind of we take two decades to get to that point. But they, they do start getting a bit of recognition, a bit of acknowledgement. They start to be taken seriously. And we do have photographic evidence of some of these matches and tournaments, which is fantastic because... Prior to that, there's very, very limited evidence. We have some press cuttings and obviously we have personal photographs, but in terms of public newspapers and having it on record, there's very little. So the 1970s starts to see that shift. Mm. Now, of course, there are men in this story and some men who Mm. were really very brave about it. For instance, the FA member Harry Butt. Oh, Harry Butt, what an absolute legend. He, He basically trashed his own football career to promote women's football. And I'm not exaggerating there. He was the manager of a team called Chiltern Valley in the 1960s and they were a very good women's side and then an organisation in Mexico were setting up an unofficial Women's World Cup in 1971 and they asked Harry whether he would bring a representative British team. And so he said, yes, but obviously I can't call them England because that you know the FA will be very annoyed. So they competed as the British Independents. And what's brilliant about this team is that because it was in August and because it was not an official team, a lot of the women who he would have taken, who would have been Chilton Valley players, couldn't get the time off work because it was six weeks in the middle of summer. And there was no such thing as taking unpaid leave to play for England because it wasn't really a thing. So Harry Bat ended up taking a bunch of teenagers, 13-year-olds, 14-year-olds, flew out to Mexico for the summer to represent the British independence at unofficial Women's World Cup. And when they returned, the girls, the players, were banned from playing for mostly between three and six months because the Women's FA and the FA at the time were saying, no, you you shouldn't have done that. It was an unofficial tournament. You shouldn't have done it. You're not allowed to play in our competitions. Harry Batt, however, was banned for life. He was not allowed to coach any further. And having spoken to the girls who were in that squad, they didn't really realise what had happened to Harry Batt because obviously there was no internet, there was no email, there was no kind of Facebook posts about it. And there was no real media coverage at the time either. So they didn't know what had happened to Harry. They didn't know why he had been banned. It was only really in the past few years that this has come out. So yes, absolute pioneer of women's football. He 
blazed a trail and it was with his support that that team went out to Mexico. But yes, he paid a very high price for it. Now, of course, we're right in the middle of the FIFA World Cup being played in Qatar at the moment. And for the British men's squad, 1966 is, of course, the year we all remember because it's the last time that England actually won. Uh, When that happened, though, women were inspired to play football. How did that change things? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm always kind of surprised and people seem quite shocked by this. You know, 1966 inspired girls to play football. You know, why wouldn't it? Little girls wouldn't have known about the ban at the time. They wanted, they saw what was on television. They saw it was was successful and they wanted to try it out themselves. And what was brilliant about 1966 was some of those World Cup winners of the men's team were actually quite supportive of women's football. They started to campaign for women to have their own tournaments. And, you know, having likes of Bobby Moore campaigning for you does raise the profile a little bit. Also what happened was um, girls were writing into football magazines and newspapers and they were saying, I'd like to play football, where is there a team? And one of those girls was uh, a teenager called Pat Gregory who lived in North London. And she wrote to her local newspaper saying that she would like to play football. She was looking for a team. And she started to get a flood of letters back from other girls who also wanted to play football. And they said, we'll join join your team if you're setting one up. She was like, well, I'm not setting one up. But Pat Gregory being Pat Gregory, she's an absolutely formidable woman, ended up setting up her own team called White Ribbon. And she became one of the founding committee members of what became the Women's FA, who organised and ran women's football up until the 1990s in England. And so, yes, we start to have the Women's FA at this point. We have a domestic league competition that's being organised. We start to have cup competitions. And I think that 1966 World Cup win for the men and the fact that the men start to promote women's football or the idea of women's football starts to shift things towards the lifting of the ban in 1970. So I do think it's a very, very important time in the history of women's football as well, even though there were no women on the pitch. I mean, there must have been huge celebration when that ban was lifted. Yes, I think there was. I think there's also kind of a modicum of having to feel, of almost feeling grateful about it. You know, we've waited this long to be allowed to play on proper pitches. We've waited this long to be able to have proper referees, to have coaches from the men's game who have experience. So, yes, I think there was huge celebration, but tempered with that level of caution, I think, which I think is probably not unusual in women's history. This kind of, we don't want to rock the boat too much at this point because it's taken this long to get them to lift it. But as we see, women keep fighting over the next few decades and we get to the point that we're at now. I mean, there is an argument to say that football played by women is not as athletic, not as fast moving, just not as good a spectacle as football played by men. I'm not necessarily subscribing to that view myself, but it is an argument that I've heard. I mean, I have heard that also, but I don't think it's very much based in fact. I think that women's sport in general is probably less reliant on sheer power. I don't think it's less athletic. I guess that depends how you're defining athletic. I think women's sport, I'm not just talking about football, I'm talking about cricket, golf, any of those things, tennis even, tends to be reliant more on technique on close control and, yes, less reliant on sheer power. I mean, if you want to watch fast-moving, fast-running, women's football does have that as well. It might not be compared 
to men if you had men and women playing against each other then yes perhaps it might be notable but as a standalone spectacle I really don't think it's very much different. Mm. Now let's talk about the uh, Women's FA Cup winners in 1982 so this is after the ban has been lifted and we have the Lowestoft ladies now this was a surprise because they were all from such a small town. Yes, Lowestoft, and um, what a beautiful place as well, out on the East Coast. And yes, they were hugely successful. They had a fantastic team. They were basically attracting all the players from the East Anglia region, but also people were travelling from further around because they had such a good setup. And I was very surprised as we started to uncover some of this. A journalist friend of mine had written about this for her journalistic dissertation when she was studying. And she was like, I can't track down all these people. Maybe you want to give it a go. So I did. And what happened with Lowestoft was essentially after they won the Women's FA Cup, they disbanded. They couldn't find a league of the right standard who would take them. Basically, everyone in London and the southeast was sick of driving to East Anglia, as far as we can work out, because it takes a long time. And when you're giving up your entire Sunday to play football and you're not getting paid for it, then it takes it takes absolute ages out of your weekend to travel all the way to Lowestoft. And so they were, Lowestoft was saying, well, you know, we'll travel every week. We don't mind. We don't mind. And uh, yes, they just couldn't find a league that would take them. So they ended up disbanding. And to be able to talk to the players and coaches about it now, it was fascinating. Obviously, they have some distance and they can reflect on what happened. But there's still quite a lot of pain there. I think there's quite a lot of disappointment, quite a lot of frustration thinking about what they could have achieved had they been allowed to stay together and to grow and to mature as a team together. We have a lot of stories like that, I think, in the history of women's football. Women who have ended up being pushed out of the game for whatever reason. Women who haven't had the chance to fulfil their potential because it hasn't been financially viable, perhaps. And I think it's been absolutely crucial in the past few years. We've seen the England coach, Serena Wiegmann, we've seen England captain Leah Williamson talk about how their success now is being built on the shoulders of giants. And I think that's absolutely vital to remember. It's not just about the past couple of years. It's been about the past century. And there are women who have really suffered and had their football careers truncated. And it's thanks to their endeavours that we have the women's game as it is now. Mm. Now, everything changed, really, in about 2015. Yes, I mean... It started to change a couple of years before that and we see the Women's Super League start and we start to have competitive domestic league in England and we start to see it on television every so often. It wasn't every week at that point, but we start to see that change. And then we see this shift in 2015, the Women's World Cup in Canada. And (laughs) it's one of those things that we always expect women to succeed and that's when they get attention. If they fail, they'll be ignored, but if they succeed, they get attention. And in Canada, England finished third and they came home with that bronze medal. And there was a huge amount of interest at that point. So we start to see a little bit of a shift. We start to see attendances increasing at that point. We see the girls starting to appear on television, for example. I remember Casey Stoney and her partner being on the um, the rain settee on a, on a weekday morning talking about their relationship and their children. So we start to see a gradual shift towards women's football being in the mainstream media, which is absolutely vital. So 2015 is when this all begins and we start that see that shift towards what we've got today. And of course, sponsorship is hugely important. And 2019 drew huge sponsorship from Barclays. 
Yes, the first title sponsor of the Women's Super League, um, and that was over a certain period of time as well. So to have that money going into the top flight to encourage a more attractive Women's Super League, it's not just about the com competition within itself, but also to attract the world's best players to England in the same way as the Men's Premier League does. This is absolutely vital. The FA have always said they want the Women's Super League to be the best domestic league in the world. Part of that reason is because they want it to help the England players, but also they want to create a viable, sustainable spectacle. And that money that's now coming into the game is helping them to do that. And of course, then there's the huge win, which really brought the Lionesses into the consciousness of everyone living in this country. Tell us more about that. Oh, my goodness. So this summer, 2022, the Euros... The Euros being hosted in England, which is a huge thing, seeing all those sellout matches all the way across the country. And yes, OK, it's a home win. And perhaps people expected the Lionesses to win at Wembley in the same way that uh, they expect the England men to win at Wembley. But I think what is massive now is that I heard people talking about the Lionesses this summer just as football, not women's football, it's football. It's did you see the match last night? It's not did you see the ladies play football last night? And I think that mindset change is massive. Starting to accept the women's game as a fantastic sporting competition in its own right. And seeing the Lionesses lift that trophy at Wembley, seeing those celebrations and hearing people say, football's come home. So after so long of waiting for the men to do it, the girls have gone out there and they've done it themselves and they have been absolute superstars ever since. They've used their position not to bask in the spotlight, but to start to call for more change. Well, within a couple of days, they were calling on the prime ministerial candidates to commit to supporting more PE lessons for girls in schools, to encourage girls to be able to play football within primary schools and secondary schools. We see a huge dropout of girls playing football at secondary school because it's not necessarily on offer for them as an option in the same way as it is for boys. They also called for more women to be encouraged into coaching, for female PE teachers to be supported in learning how to coach football, something they might not have been comfortable with. So they are using their position to call for more change. They're not satisfied with this as being a pinnacle. This is a starting point for even more success in the future. How has the personality of women's football evolved over the years? That's a really fascinating question. Having talked to so many of the players who were playing in the 60s and 70s now and the 80s, their mindset is still so hugely inspirational because they had to overcome so much. They had to fight so hard. They were dealing with you know, sexism every day and discrimination and they were battling for their right to play football. They were travelling all over the country to be able to play just a match. And I think... That is certainly a shift now. Obviously, our top flight players are professionals. This is a completely different attitude towards the game. But I think what's really important about the women's game is it has always been something that's very welcoming. It has historically been a more family-focused place to encourage children, particularly girls, to come along and enjoy it. So you will see a more evenly split demographic at a women's game. And I love that the women's game is so welcoming. I love that you don't necessarily have a particular space for away fans to go to. I like that fans can mingle. And it has a real heart and soul still in a way that perhaps the top flight of the men's game has started to lose a little bit. So, yes, I think that is something that's really crucial, really essential to women's football, and I hope we don't lose that. Are women footballers paid the same as men? They are not paid the same as men. I think 
that isn't anywhere close to happening, really, to be to be honest, at this moment. Yes, wages will increase the more that sponsorship and media increases. I think the prize money issue is also becoming more of a hot topic. We're seeing the FA Cup prize money increase, I think, it's three or fourfold this season, which is fantastic. And we're seeing the World Cup prize money is being more evenly split as well. Because it's not just about what money uh, particular countries or particular tournaments bring in. It's also about the future of the game. We always have to remember that women are fighting against this 50 years of being banned. We're still playing catch up. And the only way that we can catch up is if that investment is there and the footballing authorities do still have the responsibility to rectify this wrong. So that's where we are at the moment. I don't think the equality in terms of the finance will be there in the next few years but perhaps in another 50 we might see something a little bit closer. Carrie thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Unsuitable for Females The Rise of the Lionesses and Women's Football in England is by Carrie Dunn and it's published by Arena Sport. It's out now. You've been listening to Monocle Reads thanks to the producer Nora Hull and researcher Emily Sands. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.